And as soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now, at the least, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in the prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of his purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his, gar his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the king of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lamak sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, Hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let's see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the son of God. This is the word of the Lord.
Good morning, City Church. It's good to be with you this morning as we gather together. I know that many of us are reeling, as I said before, after the horrors of this past week. Um, you know, in many ways, we've been given a front row seat to the fall and the realities of the brokenness of this world. Um, and it's natural in the midst of these times to ask a lot of questions. Um, how could something like this happen? Why would a God allow this to happen? Where was God in the midst of all of this? I have read many things this past week, and there are tons of these kind of questions that are flying around and swirling around. Many of you, I know, are asking these questions. Some of you may have even come today because you have these questions. And the reality is, um, oftentimes when we have these questions, we, we come to God and we demand answers to them because of our sorrow, because of our grief. We oftentimes, as C.S. Lewis put in his book, God in the Dock, we want to put God on trial and ask these deep questions and get answers to them. And the reality is, is the answers that we often get from uh, Christianity or the church um, seem like platitudes to us, don't they? Everything's going to be okay. We just need to trust in the Lord. It's all part of his plan. But these platitudes never really seem to satisfy us. They never really meet the deepest needs of our hearts. They never drive us to a place of actually having hope. Platitudes are never meant to do that. They never really give us what we want and have to have in this world. So the question is, where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? Do we just go to despair? Or is there a place that we can actually have real hope in this world? You know, as I thought about it this past week, you know, one of the things that struck me as I was pondering, as I was grieving, as I was trying to find the words to say this morning, is that it's good for us to gather together and open up God's words because it's important to understand that Christianity is not just a set of ethical or philosophical bullet points, and the Bible is not just an encyclopedia of answers. It is a story. I would even say that it's the greatest story that's ever been told. Christians believe that it is the story of reality, who we are, where we've come from, who God is, what he is doing in this world, why he has come, and what he is doing to end the brokenness of this world. The reality is that this story doesn't answer all the questions that we have for it. We wish that it would, but it doesn't. But it does give us a narrative structure, and it gives us a context for making sense of much of the evilness and the brokenness of this world. However, in order to truly understand what it means and how it tells us these things, I believe that we need to actually begin at the end. We need to begin at the climax of the story. And therefore, even though it is not a good week, it is good that it is Easter week that we're entering into. Because this week is the climax of the great story. And this climax is what actually helps us to make sense of everything else. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie The Sixth Sense. Um, if I'm ruining it for you, I apologize, but the reality is, is that it's really old, as I often say with these things. Um, in this movie, uh, the main character is a psychologist, and he's trying to help this kid uh, who talks to ghosts, and those ghosts give him instructions on how to help people in this world. And you go throughout the whole movie, and he's helping this child along, and it isn't until the end. There's a lot of confusing scenes and a lot of confusing kind of uh, visions that, that they kind of go through, uh, and you don't really understand anything that's happening or why it's happening until you get to the end, and you realize that Bruce Willis, who is the kind of the protagonist of the movie, is actually a ghost himself. And at that moment, they go back through the entire story, and it all begins to make sense. All of the people that he was talking to weren't really looking at him. All of the things that he was doing really wasn't connected to that. And at the end, 
it began to really fit together and make sense of the reality of what we were dealing with. What I want us to understand as we open up this passage today and as we enter into this week is that the true story of the Bible is a lot like that. Once Jesus comes along in his life, his death, and his resurrection, all of the rest of the story begins to make sense, even if we don't have all the answers. And it is only in his coming and what he has done for us that we actually can have the hope that we are longing for in this world. And so what we're going to be doing over the next week is this. Today, we're going to actually focus in on the cross and his death. And next week, we're going to focus in on the resurrection. You know, in a week like this, it's, it's easy to want to jump over the hard parts and actually get directly to the resurrection, right? Because he lives, we have hope. Because he lives, uh, he's going to do away with all evil and brokenness. And I want that too. I long for that. But if we move too quickly and jump over the cross... That will not make sense. And therefore, it's good for us to lean in and actually take some time, even in the midst of a very difficult week, to ponder and to consider why the cross, why the crucifixion is so important to us, and how it actually gives us a story by which we can understand how we can have hope in this world. So that's exactly what I want us to do this morning. But before we do that, let's pray, because we need the Lord to be with us this morning and to help us in our time of need. So let's pray. Gracious Lord, we come to you today and we cry out to you in the midst of our sorrow, in the midst of our grief, in the midst of the brokenness of this world. It is hard, Lord, to know even know what to say, to know uh, how to even express what we want to know. We have questions, Lord, and we, we long to have them answered in you. And Lord, we pray that you would remember your promises to meet us here today. And as we begin uh, to enter into this holy week, that you would unfold the wonder of the great story of the coming of our Savior to us. And that through that, Lord, that you begin to give us that peace that surpasses understanding, that hope that goes beyond all the brokenness of this world. That joy that can even come in the midst of great sorrow. And that, Lord, that you would bind up our wounds, that you would heal us in you, and that you would transform us by your grace. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. As we begin to kind of look at the passage that we're going to be uh, in this morning from here in Mark 15, uh, what we're really looking at is a trial. I talked about a minute ago uh, the concept of uh, uh, C.S. Lewis when he wrote the book God in the Dock. Dock is kind of the British word for the, you know, the, uh, the seat on which the, the witnesses would stand or those who are accused or stand. And so what we see here is that God on trial, right? That's the whole point of what he's talking about. And what we're looking at in this passage is exactly that. It is Jesus Christ on trial. Um, we have been walking through the book of Mark and the great story of the book of Mark. Uh, Jesus is coming, asking these big questions. Who is Jesus and why is he coming to this world? And at this point, we are entering into the climactic ending of the story. And that begins with Jesus being arrested and being put on trial for what the religious leaders at the time believed were crimes that were worthy of his very death. A little bit more of a context as we kind of enter into this is this. At first, we have seen over the last several months that the religious leaders actually believe Jesus was just kind of a harmless, you know, backwoods rabbi. So they pretty much ignored him in the beginning. But very quickly, they came to realize that they couldn't just ignore him because there was something much more about this rabbi than any of the other ones that they've ever dealt with in the past. Uh, he was a powerful teacher. He began to do miracles that went beyond anything that they could uh, explain in this world. 
They were shocked and amazed by the things that he did and the things that he said. And because of this, huge crowds had begun to follow him. And even in this, as they started to realize that he was more of a threat to them than they liked, they began to go and to try to challenge him. Uh, But they found very quickly that every time they tried to challenge him, that he quickly and easily was able to point out the reality of their own hypocrisy, their own lack of understanding. And this embarrassed them. And at this point, they began to make radical plans to get rid of him. At first, it was kind of just wanting to get rid of him in a general sense, but then it became quickly something even greater than that. Because Jesus started to make claims that went beyond even uh, things that they could uh, just kind of sweep under the rug or try to just get rid of somebody in a general sense. He began to claim that he was the Messiah. He was the Son of God. He had the power to forgive sins, that he was God himself in this world. And therefore, they moved very quickly at that point to try to find a way to actually kill him. And instead of listening to his claims, we are told that they became deeply envious of him. This was actually the motivation for what the, th- of the things that they did. And they started to look for ways that they could kill him and scapegoat him for their envy. And as the story goes on, what we find is that they get a chance with one of Jesus' very own followers, a man named Judas Iscariot, offered to to betray him and to sell him to them for a sum of money. And they quickly took advantage of this opportunity, we are told, and sent guards to capture Jesus under the cover of night because they were afraid of the crowds and what they might do to them if they did it in the daytime. So they captured him at night and had an illegal trial, and they charged him with blasphemy for claiming to be God or claiming to be the one who could rebuild the temple. So you have to see that is what they're upset with him about is because he's claiming to be God. That is ultimately what got him killed. And they sentenced him, we are told, to death because of this. But here's the rub in that, and this is really important to understand. The Jewish leaders at the time had no authority to actually be able to sentence Jesus, or anyone else for that matter, to death, or to carry that sentence out. They were under the authority and under the rule of the Romans, and only Romans had that power to do that at that time. And the Romans could care less what the Jews thought was blasphemy, or if somebody that they knew was blasphemous in some way toward their God. The Romans had absolutely no interest in that whatsoever. And so the Jewish leaders recognized and realized that they had to come up with something greater, something bigger, some accusation against Jesus that actually would lead the Romans to understand and to go along with what they were hoping to accomplish, and that is Jesus' death. And the idea is, you hear, is that that they came up with was that Jesus, who had claimed to be the Messiah and the son of David, really was the Davidic king. If you read the Old Testament, you read the story, you understand that in the Old Testament you had this great king David, uh, and the Messiah was supposed to come from his lineage, and so he was the heir to that kingdom. And so Jesus himself, by claiming to be the Messiah, the Christ, was claiming to be the Davidic king that he was the king of the Jews. And anyone claiming to be the king of the Jews, or a king in any way, form, or fashion, under the rule of the Romans, was immediately seen as an incredible attack on Caesar himself. It was sedition. And so what the Jews did, what the Jewish leaders did, is that they came and they charged Jesus, they accused Jesus of sedition, instead of the thing that they were really upset with, which was blasphemy. And as they figured out this plan, they held a meeting of the Sanhedrin, very early in the morning, on the night that Jesus was crucified, 
They ratified their decision, then they bound Jesus, and they took him to Pontius Pilate. Now, who is Pontius Pilate? We've heard that name many times. Pontius Pilate was uh, the prefect or the governor of what the Romans considered to be a second-class kind of Roman province, which was the area of Jerusalem and Israel. Um, And he was this from about AD 26 to about AD 36, for about 10 years. Uh, His wife, uh, it's almost uh, more important to understand who his wife was because it explains why he got the position that he did, was a woman named Claudia Procula. Uh, She was the illegitimate daughter daughter of Empress Tiberius and the great-granddaughter of uh, uh, Caesar Augustus. And so the reason that, uh, that Pilate has the position that he has is because he's married to this woman. Uh, she had incredible power. She had incredible uh, influence with those who were in the ruling class at the time. But despite this, Pilate was not well thought of by the people above him. He was actually considered to be a, great, a very weak and a very brutal ruler. And he really didn't do things very well. Uh, we know from history that there are several different accounts of how his uh, leading in this area, his governorship, had gone astray, had not gone well. Uh, Philo and Josephus both record Uh, that he had led and been involved in some really violent acts with those who were in the Jewish community at the time. One of uh, the stories goes that he had these votive shields. These are just big shields that had like a stamp on the front of them. And he had lined his palace with these votive shields. And what he had put on there was both uh, the emperor's name and his name, which was a big no-no. And uh, But he was kind of hiding this and, and kind of in order to promote himself, and the Jewish leaders had actually turned him in for doing this, and so he got his hand slapped. The emperor actually uh, slapped his hand for doing this and got onto him for it. And this kind of began to separate him and began to, to breed bad blood between him and the Jewish leaders until later on when he was instructed to build an aqueduct in the, in the, in the area of Jerusalem. Uh, the, reason, the way that he went about trying to get money for that is he actually broke into the temple treasury He took all the money out of the temple treasury and used that money to pay for the aqueduct. And the Jews protested this. They actually uh, rioted over this. And his response to this is that he sent an entire uh, garrison of his guards in and slaughtered many of the Jewish leaders and Jews at the time. And so you can see that there are horrific and awful things. They hated each other. Pilate hated the Jewish leaders and the Jews. The Jewish leaders and the Jews hated Pilate. This is the context of what we're dealing with here. And as a result of this, Pilate was also on very shaking ground with the emperor himself, and he knew this. Not only did he know this, but the Jewish leaders knew this, and so they sought to use this knowledge to their advantage in this situation. Right? They sought to bring this uh, accusation of sedition to Pilate, knowing that he could not ignore that, because if he ignored it and, he, and it was found out that someone was actually claiming these kind of things under him, that he would get in tr- incredible trouble and probably lose his position. And as a result of this, Pilate invited them in, allowed them to come with this accusation against te- Jesus. But Pilate wasn't a fool, we were told here, and he immediately saw through uh, the accusation that they were making. He even says in the text that he... He recognized that it was because of envy that they were doing this instead of a reality around what he, they were actually accusing Jesus of. However, he couldn't take it lightly because of his position. So in verse 2, we are told that he took Jesus inside the palace along with some of the Jewish leaders, and he began to interrogate Jesus. And he began to ask him, are you the king of the Jews? 
And what we are told here is that Jesus answered him in a very odd way. He said, you have said so. And the Greek there, uh, in the, when it uses the term you, is actually emphatic. So he's saying, you have said so. So like he's suggesting that it's only Pilate saying this, or that he's not denying that he's a king in any way. It's very ambiguous, right? Uh, he's just suggesting that this is not exactly what is going on or what the, the Jewish leaders are actually accusing him of. And this, we are told, just confirms what Pilate's uh, already suspe- suspected of the situation, that Jesus actually wasn't an insurrectionist like they claimed. But he couldn't do anything about it. And as you can imagine, even this very questioning upset the Jewish leaders. And in some of the other gospel accounts, what we have here is that they got very angry and they started to viciously accuse Jesus of all kinds of things. And in response to this, in verse 4 in our passage, Pilate turns to Jesus and says, have you no answer to make for these accusations that they're bringing against you? They're making many charges. But Jesus, we are told, gave no answer to him. And this amazed Pilate even more and even more convinced him of his innocence. And so it's at this point, we are told, that Pilate came up with a plan. And the plan is, is kind of developed here in verse 6. Uh, there was an annual tradition that happened during that time, during the feast uh, of, uh, the, of that time. And in this, uh, the governor, who was Pilate, would release one prisoner uh, to the people during that time as a kind of a sign of goodwill to them, to build goodwill with the people. And Pilate knew about this, and so he reasoned uh, that this might be a way out of his difficult situation. Um, and... It just so happened that Pilate, we are told, had a notorious prisoner named Jesus Barabbas, uh, son of the father. He's probably the son of one of the priests at the time. And we are told in verse second that, 7 that he is actually a rebel. He is actually an insurrectionist and actually a murderer. This guy did these things. We know from historical uh, resources that Barabbas had been caught leading a revolt against Rome and had been charged with sedition. And therefore, he was going to be executed along with two of the people that he had been involved in this with. That's why we have three crosses, uh, as we're told later on in the story. This has been planned. The crosses were not just there all the time. They had put them up to execute these insurrections. And Pilate knew that Jesus was popular as well. Uh, So what he assumed in the midst of this And he reasoned is that if he offered up a choice to the people, this great crowd that had gathered around, between Barabbas, who is this murderer and this insurrectionist, and Jesus, who he knew was very popular because he had seen the triumphal entry just the week before, that they would certainly choose Jesus. And in doing this, not only would he be able to let Jesus go, as he thought was the right thing to do, but he would be able to stick it to the Jewish leaders because he knew that they would hate this. And he hated them, and he he kind of relished the idea of being able to stick it to him in this way. So he puts his plan in motion, we are told, and he offers up this choice to the crowd. However, as soon as he does so, what he realizes at this point is that he has drastically underestimated the Jewish leader's influence on the crowd. And what we are told in verse 11 is that the the priest, the high priest, the chief priest, began to go through the crowd and they began to convince those who were there to actually tell them that they should crucify Jesus instead of Barabbas. So when Pilate asked the crowd if he should release the king of the Jews, the crowd cried out, we were told, not this man, but Barabbas. And this totally surprised Pilate. So he asked him, then what should I do with this one who is called the Christ? And in response, the crowd cried out, crucify him. And this shocked Pilate even more. Now, you need to understand that crucifixion at that time 
Uh, you, know, we, you know, you can read the Gospels and you can read these stories and you can kind of think that, okay, they were just kind of crucifying people all over the place and this was just a common thing that they did. And that's not the case. Crucifixion was an incredibly brutal way to die and it was reserved only for the worst of criminals at that time. And so the idea that the people would call out and cry out that they should crucify Jesus in this way was a shocking thing by any account. And Pilate responds to this by asking, why? What evil has he done? But the crowd doesn't answer his question because they knew he was innocent. They cry out even louder, we are told, crucify him, crucify him. And they began to chant him louder and louder. Now again, Pilate is totally shocked by how this is all kind of unfolded, but he knows that he can't risk another uprising or another revolt by the crowds that are there. And because of this, he gives in. Pilate hated the Jewish leaders, what we need to understand here, but he loved his position more, and he was more scared of losing his position than he was of actually sticking it to the Jewish leaders. Therefore, he is unwilling to risk another incident. So he reluctantly accepts that he has been outmaneuvered by these Jewish leaders, and he turns Jesus over to be crucified. But he doesn't do so until he has one last kind of poke at the Jewish leaders. And this is important for us to understand. He takes Jesus and he turns him over to his guards, and they bring in an entire garrison, we are told. And they flog him, and they beat him, and they mock him, and they spit upon him. And then they give him a crown of thorns, and they robe him in a purple robe, which is the sign of a king, the color of a king. And they begin to parade him around, dressed up as a king, and to make him look utterly ridiculous in this way, not just as kind of a mockery toward Jesus, which was that, but in order to mock the Jewish leaders who had claimed that the reason that he should be killed is because he was the Jewish king. And so they are, he, Pilate here is mocking the Jewish leaders by doing this. He even creates a sign that says, uh, King of the Jews, and he hangs that above Jesus' head in the end, and the Jewish leaders hate that. Uh, they try to get him to take it down, but he refuses to do it because he is getting back at them for what they have done here. He's using Jesus as a scapegoat in this way. Therefore, in the end, what we see here is that Jesus is truly a scapegoat for the Jewish leaders' envy, for Pilate's career, and also for the mob mentality of the crowd that is gathered around. And this truly is shocking. But as we open up the story of the scriptures and we begin to understand the flow of everything, what we are called to remember in this is that it's not quite as shocking as we might imagine at first. It seems shocking, doesn't it, that the envy of the Jewish leaders would lead them to scapegoat Jesus in this way and to have him killed. And the reason this is we tend to think of envy as kind of just kind of a, a uh, secondary sin or a minor sin that we just kind of deal with on the side. But the reality is, if you begin to really dig into it and begin to understand it, what you will find, it is incredibly serious. Dr. Peter Langham, the psychology today, claims that envy is one of the most common reasons that we have murder in our culture today, in our world today. All the way back to the beginning, it's the reason that Cain killed Abel. Uh, it's the reason that jealous spouses murdered their spouses. It is the reason that greed is oftentimes the reasoning for great brokenness and evil in this world. Uh, it's also true for you know, social media killings and other things that happen in this world. 
envy in this way clings to our hearts. It drives us mad, and it leads us to a place of doing horrible things. We live in a world that is consumed with comparison and envy. And because of this, we murder people in our hearts all the time, online and in other places. But oftentimes we have seen that it actually leads to greater things as well. Secondly, it seems shockingly that Pilate would be willing to scapegoat Jesus in this way just to save his career. Let me ask you a question. How many people do you know who have been willing to sacrifice their marriage, their family, their friends on the altar of their career? And begin to ask that question is not so simple, is it? It seems shocking that the crowd would be willing to scapegoat Jesus in this way and to send an innocent man to his death just because of a mob mentality. But how often have you seen justice overlooked and innocent sacrifice, the innocence of this world sacrificed because of the whim of popular opinion or mob mentality? You can just think of how our internet works today. I don't need to go into whole, a lot more detail about that. You can see how it spins. You can see how it grows. You can see how it crushes people in this way. But it's also true of systemic racism and systemic brokenness in our culture. We turn a blind eye to things because we might be part of a tribe or a particular culture or a particular racial group that does not have to deal with things, and we benefit from those things, and therefore because of the mob mentality that we have, we are able to overlook the true brokenness and evil that exists in this world. There are lots of really, really broken and evil things that are happening in our very neighborhood. Poverty, brokenness, suffering. And it is really easy to ignore all of that and just live happy lives, isn't it? Until we begin to really think about it. The uncomfortable truth is that this type of evil isn't really shocking at all. It happens all the time in our world. And the truth is, we constantly are trying to scapegoat other people for it. The entire framework and structure of our political system is based on this right now, right? Conservatives uh, believe fundamentally that it's only individual responsibility that matters, and so there's no such thing as systemic evil or corporate you know, kind of realities to the things that we deal with. On the other side, liberals tend to think that there are only systemic things and corporate things, and there's no such thing as individual responsibility for things. And because of this, we're constantly blaming each other. We're constantly scapegoating each other. We're constantly pointing the finger at each other in order to justify ourselves and to not have to deal with the real issue at hand, and that is that we are all responsible for these realities. And according to the Bible, the reason for this is because we live in a world that has been horribly broken and marred by sin. In the beginning of time, in the fall, we are told that our first parents broke the world. We broke the world. And we allowed sin and brokenness and all forms of evil to enter in. And immediately we started looking for someone to scapegoat. That's what the story tells us. Adam started blaming Eve and Eve started blaming Adam. And we've been doing the same thing ever since. It just cycles and perpetuates itself. And the truth is we love to think of ourselves as heroes when we think of the great story of this world. But in reality, what the Bible says is that we are the rebels and the insurrectionists. And we are the guilty ones. We are the ones who are guilty of sedition against our God. Now that's a hard thing to hear. It's a hard thing to deal with. But the reality is, and the reason that we have um, this week before we have next week, is because we need to realize the depth of our sin before we can understand the heights of his grace. 
We need to realize why we needed Jesus to come before we can realize why his resurrection is such good, good news. We need to recognize this truth is actually part of the good news, not because there's evil and sin in this world, but because that is the whole reason that Jesus has come. It is the reason he has come into this world. You know, I have a friend uh, named Dave Peters, um, who was a member of the church uh, that I was a part of in St. Louis called Grace and Peace Fellowship. And he's a professor at uh, Washington University there. And uh, he was studying one day uh, uh, kind of concepts around the crucifixion. It was part of what he did um, in some of the teaching that he did. And he began to wonder about why Jesus asked for wine vinegar on the cross. Uh, and uh, he says that John makes it clear that when uh, that it was Jesus would be able to cry out in a loud voice, Hagia. It is finished, or it is accomplished. But he wanted to know if there was any kind of special significance to this cry as well. And so one day, he made a phone call to a friend of his who happened to be a rabbi, Rabbi Katz, who was an Orthodox Jew, and asked if there was any kind of connection between this idea uh, of it is accomplished, or Hagia, it is finished, uh, and the Jewish Talmud, or the Mishnah, in relationship to Yom Kippur. And Dr. Katz said, actually, yes, there is. And I don't have time to look at it today, but I'll come by tomorrow and I'll look it up and we can talk about it. And he says the next day he came by and this is what he told him. On Yom Kippur, there were two atonement animals. The first was the Kippurah. And it is a perfect spotless lamb that is slain and its blood is taken to the Holy of Holies to atone for the sins of the people. But before this can happen, there's a second atonement animal, a living goat called an Azazel or a scapegoat. And Leviticus explains the function of this Azazel in Leviticus 16. When Aaron was finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tabernacle and the altar, he shall bring forth the Azazel. He is to lay both of his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the desert and in the care of a man appointed for the task. And the goat will carry upon itself to a solitary place all of their sins. And the man appointed shall release it there in the desert. And after this is accomplished, Aaron is to go into the tabernacle and make atonement for himself and for the people. Now, since it was paramount in this situation, as the people of God practice every year, this uh, kind of practice of taking a live goat, the high priest placing his hands upon him, putting the sins of the people on it, and then taking it out. It was really important, as you can imagine, that this goat didn't somehow wander back into the city at some point. So they didn't just take him right outside the gates and let him go, because it would have been terrible. It would have been a disaster if he came, came roaming back around. And so the Misha actually gives greater instructions about what they were supposed to do in this situation. They did, in fact, appoint a man. In fact, they appointed 10 men. And these 10 men had different stations out into the desert, about a mile apart from each other. The first man would receive the goat from the high priest, then he would take it outside the city gates and walk a mile, and he would give it to the second man. The second man would take the goat at that point, and he would take it about a mile to the second station and give it to the second man. And this would continue on and on and on and on for 10 people until the last guy got the goat, and he was standing on the edge of a precipice, which actually is the second name for this goat, to go to the precipice, and he would kick it off the edge. 
to make sure that he never came back. And at that point, he would walk, he would pick up, uh, because he was supposed to carry with him a jar of wine vinegar, and he would take a rag, and he would drink it and wipe it upon his lips. And then he would cry out across the desert, Hagia, Sair, la midbah. Hagia, Sair, la midbah. It is accomplished, the goat, the desert. And as each appointed man hears that faint cry from miles away in the desert, the Mishnah says, he is similarly to wet his lips with the wine vinegar and to shout the same phrase out to the next man, Hagia. And this message by this way is passed from man to man because this message is way too important for them just to, to run across the desert. It had to be passed quickly. And so they passed it in this way and they shouted across the desert until it reached the last man. And in that moment, when the high priest would hear the Hagia shouted across the desert, he would sacrifice the Kippurah, the second atonement lamb. And then he would go in to make atonement for the God's people. My friend said that as Rabbi Katz finished his story, he began trembling and had to steady himself on his chair. And then he was able to compose himself enough to ask him how to spell Hagir Sa'ad La Midbar. And then as his friend left, he turned around and closed the door and then fell on his knees and worshipped. Because in that moment, he realized that Jesus is our Azazel. He is the scapegoat upon whom our sins have been laid. He literally took the fall for our sins. And as Jesus took that wine vinegar and drank it on the cross and cried out, it is finished, he accomplished the great story of God's word. In verse 36, we are told to fulfill the scriptures, and because of all things were accomplished, Jesus called for wine vinegars so that he could wet his lips and cry out across the desert of his and our separation from God. Agia, it is finished. Our atonement is accomplished. And at that moment, our great scapegoat became our kapoor the perfect lamb of God, and willingly gave up his life so that our sins might be forgiven in this world as a substitutionary sacrifice for us and that he might provide a way for us to be forgiven and restored and healed and brought back in to the presence of our God. And we were told at that moment that the curtain of the temple split in two and the way between God and man, which has been shut because of our sin, was opened up. We need to understand, I do not have all the answers to the question of why evil happens in this world and why one particular evil thing happens over another. I don't know why God would allow all things to happen. We're not told the answers to these questions in the story. But because of the great story, I know this. Our God loved us so much, and he was so concerned with the brokenness and evil of our world the brokenness and evil in our own lives, that he willingly came into this world and he laid down his life and he entered into our mess so that we could be saved from it. He was totally innocent, yet he willingly allowed himself to stand as a criminal before evil men and to be unjustly accused and condemned so that the sins, our sins, might be laid upon him as our Azazel. He stood and was judged guilty so that we might stand forgiven before the great judge of the universe. He 
remain silent so that we might be able to speak. He suffered so that we might be healed. He substituted himself for us so that like Barabbas, the true criminal guilty of sedition in this story might be set free. His body was torn so that the temple curtain itself might be torn in two. And he died so that evil and death might be put to death forever. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And as a result, when Jesus cried out, it is finished, I can tell you that it was no platitude. It was no platitude. This is not a peacetime hope that we have been given. It is a wartime hope of blood-stained, tear-smeared reality in the hope of a God who has given everything to save us from the brokenness of this world. It is the greatest act of sacrificial love and grace that the world has ever known. And because of it, we can have hope. We can cry out hallelujah, even in the midst of the greatest evil and brokenness of this world. For we can know for certain that everything needed for our salvation, everything needed for our hope, everything to secure the future glory, the future uh, reality that all tears will be wiped away, that every evil would be removed, has been accomplished in what he has done for us. Chad Scruggs, who's the pastor at Covenant, said this a couple of weeks ago in one of his sermons. A strong confidence in the end of the story does not undo or justify the grief in the middle But we do not grieve as those who do not have hope or who do not know Jesus. Because you know what is coming at the end of the story, and in the end, Jesus wins. Jesus wins. The prophet Isaiah says this, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was uh, caused for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. My friends, all the characters of this story, all of us, are unknowingly part of a great tapestry of grace and hope that has been laid out upon the reality of this world by the great story of our Savior's coming in this world, his life, his death, and his resurrection. And the cross, as a great climax of this story, actually brings us to a place of not only understanding how the rest of the story can make a little bit more sense, even when we don't have all the answers, but that it can actually give us the hope that we are desperately longing for. It is the only place that we can have hope in this world. It is the only hope we have. And that's why we cling to it at this time of year. Easter is good. I cannot wait until next Sunday. But it's good for us not to run too quickly to that place and to remember why we need Easter, why we need the resurrection, why we need that hope in our lives, and how Jesus has accomplished it on our behalf. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, Father, we thank you for your word, how it gives us words to say even when we don't know what to say, that your spirit intercedes for us even when we don't know how to pray, that it reminds us of the great story even when it doesn't give us all the answers. And that you are a God who has not only not abandoned us, but you have invited us into your presence. You have uh, surrounded us with your love. You have invited us to grieve and to mourn, but not to mourn as those who have never no hope because you yourself, our Savior, has come. And he has given everything 
as our kapora, as our scapegoat for our salvation. And because of that, we know that we will be with him for all eternity. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Comfort your people this day. Remind us of the great story. Remind us of the truth of what you have done, that you have not abandoned us. And in you, we can have true hope. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.